You are now tuned in to the Hot Dog Stand Chronicles. Extraordinary people with extraordinary stories. Sitting down with a hot dog extraordinaire himself, Mike Rudd. Now, on to the Chronicle. Hello there, my friends. How are you doing today? It is time for another edition of the tastiest podcast out there, the Hot Dog Stand Chronicles. I'm your host, Marketing Fun with Mike, a.k.a. Mike Rudd. And the Hot Dog Stand Chronicles are real interviews with real hot dog extraordinaires. We have one goal, and that's to tell their story and to hopefully inspire you. A couple of quick notes here. One, we are now on iHeartRadio. So if you have the iHeartRadio app, look us up and mark us down as a station to listen to. And secondly, let's get a moment of silence here for Jack White and Godier. Just a quick one. They served as my intro and my outro to the podcast for the first 12 editions and did a remarkable job, but as you heard from the intro, it was time to move on. Let's get today's show rocking. I'm super stoked to have on the show today a mentor of mine, a consultant for the radio station I work at, and a friend. He's the best public speaker I know, and he's a man who has written more blog posts than probably anyone but Seth Godin. Watch out, Seth. He's coming. He's coming at you. And a man who has who has more than 30 followers on Twitter, however in the world you do that. And he also was once kissed by another man in an L.A. bar in the 1990s for being mistaken as Anthony Kiedis of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Ladies and gentlemen, he's a catalyst, an instigator, and an agitator. Anthony Anarino, welcome to the show. Some intro, man. <laughs> Thank you. How's it going today? It's great. Thanks for meeting me here. We're, we're live at Stoff's in Grandview, one of my favorite coffee places, and it's a little noisy here, so I appreciate you coming here and doing this. No, it's all good. It's it's funny. Uh, when I about ten years ago, my first my first meetings, client said, "Let's meet at Stoff's," and uh, he's sitting right over there. Ten years later, meeting with somebody else. So some things never change. It's a great place. Why don't you uh, kind of jump in a little bit? Tell us tell us your story a little bit, um, and why the listeners might be interested in what you do. Um, okay, so where do you start that story? Let's go back. Uh, I'm a teenager growing up uh, with a single mom raising four kids. I live in a small apartment complex, and there's literally nobody who's a vision of what you could be when you grow up. So there are people that work in restaurants or people that work in factories, and they're all good people. But there's not any kind of a person that I see other than my mom at that time, who was somewhat entrepreneurial and by force and was forced to start her own business. But there's not a vision. So what does a 13 or a 14-year-old boy see that he can cling on to to say, I got a path for the future and I know who I can be and what I can do. Um, and I saw Motley Crue and I decided, uh, this is it for me. I'm going to start a rock band. And when I turned 17, I started that rock band, and we played all over Columbus under the name Bad Reputation. We could fill the Alrosa Friday, Saturdays. Uh, we could fill the Newport with another band. And we got to the point where we were doing about as much as we could do here, so I went to Los Angeles to, to work on a bigger, a bigger platform. So while I'm in Los Angeles, I have to work, and I go to work for a big staffing firm, which was my family business here. And I got a manager who one day comes over and pushes a list of clients across the desk to me and he says, whose clients are these? And I said, those are my clients. And he said, well, what do our salespeople do? And I said, well, they go out and they call on people and they try to win business. And 
I didn't get the point of his question because I was young and naive, but the point of the question was, how do you have this list of accounts and they don't have any accounts? And I quickly picked up on what he was saying and I didn't want to throw these people under the bus, but within a month they were all gone. And he came back and he said, how did you, meaning somebody with hair down to their waist and a ponytail, you know, uh, wearing a suit, when these accounts, sort of recognizing there was a gap between the image and what I was doing. And I told him, I don't, I don't know, I just call people and I try to find a way to be helpful. And if I'm helpful, some of them let me come and talk to them and then we find out that we can work together and then we work together and that's what we do. And he said, well, I want you to cut your hair and I want you to go into full-time outside sales. And he said those words, but the words that I heard were, I want you to cut your hair and become a psychopathic axe murderer. <laughs> because in my mind, salespeople were manipulative, persuasive, they took advantage of people, they're self-oriented, and I didn't have any positive image of what salespeople were. But he was crafty, and he said, so all those words that you use to describe salespeople, I said, yeah. He said, is that how you won those clients? And it was a pretty clever trap that he sprung, but it did not ensnare me in any way. And I said, you know, I really I appreciate this, but I don't want to be a salesperson. I would never want to be a salesperson. My clients like me, and they wouldn't like me if I was a salesperson. But he wanted me in this role, and he said, listen, you work for me, and you have to do the job that I need you to do, not the job that you want to do. So you come in Monday with your hair cut. You don't have to cut it all the way off. This is Los Angeles. But I need it so that it's a shorter ponytail. And you're going to be an outside sales, or I'm going to fire you. So I did what any person, no more No more music, well, no I, more band if you don't do that. There'd be no more nothing. I mean, I'd yeah. be moving home. So I did what anyone would do in my situation under pressure like this. If you need to make a really big and important decision in your life, you get your friends and you immediately go to the bar, right? Yep. So I'm three or four cans of Foster's in when the story that you alluded to at the <laughs> beginning and someone grabs me and turns me around and kisses me and he's surprised and I'm surprised, we're both surprised. We dated for a little while, but it didn't work out. And, and I realized I still look like everyone in LA at the time. This is 1991, I look like everyone, and I thought, you know what, I could probably go black pros, cut it up shoulder length and get away with it. And so that was my rationalization. But what the, the story is, is I got the idea, selling isn't something that you do to somebody. Selling is actually creating value and being helpful to other people. So once I recognized that I could go out and actually help people get a result that they couldn't get without me, I was able to put on the mantle of salesperson. And so that's what I've done ever since. And everything that I've written or done on the sales blog is really based on this premise. All of us need to sell. Everybody I know who wants to make more money or their business isn't doing as well as they want it to has a sales problem. And it really starts with can you create enough value to be relevant and compelling so that you can capture some of that value and grow your business? Absolutely. And you know that I, I read your blog every day and I think it's great stuff and kind of, I think it spins off of what I try to do in sales, just be a human and just be yourself. But I, you know, I tell people we're all in sales every day, whether that's you're selling yourself to your kids by how you talk to them in the morning. Do you just ignore them? And, throw them in the car and take them to score you or you asking them no what are you doing today what how is your how's that test you ready for that you excited for basketball so whether or not a lot of people have that swarmy vision of a salesperson in their minds but it doesn't have to be that way and it's not that way and the people I think going forward that are going to really 
thrive and create value or people like you and people, the processes that you've laid down. Uh, why don't you dig in a little bit about more about what you're doing with those processes and, and how they're working for you and for the people you work with let's, and how they can work for these people. Let's go back to teenagers yeah. first because that's probably the hardest prospect I have as a 15-year-old teenage son and twin 13-year-old daughters. And it really starts with mindsets. So what I know about human beings is that we're brainwashed. We have all these ideas come in and we get hooked on these ideas and then we have a certain set of behaviors because we've taken on the ideas and believe them. So I spend all my time trying to brainwash my children with positive brainwashing because whatever you believe becomes your reality and how you go to the world. So even when I'm working with a sales organization, it starts with mindset, skill set, and toolkit. And the mindset's the first and most important thing because if you don't get the mindset right, nothing you do after that matters. If you don't understand that it's about value creation, if you don't understand it's about serving other people, if you don't understand that it's deeply about trust and caring and accountability and being somebody's real strategic partner and helping them, then you can't succeed in sales, at least at the level that you could succeed if you had all those things. Then once you get that mindset, then it's the skill set. So what are the actions that you need to take to bring those things to life? It's one thing to say that you care about people, but they can feel you're caring by your presence, and it's how you behave. Do you treat them like a transaction? Or you do, when you're with them, do you treat them like they're the only and most important thing in the world, and that you're really after helping them get that outcome? And then you need some tools. Um, sales organizations need a playbook. You need planned dialogues. People don't like it when I say scripts because they say I don't want to sound scripted. And I tell them, well, you have a script already. You just have a terrible script. <laughs> and if you had better language and you thought about it and you thought deeply about the message you're trying to convey, you would be stronger. So most of the work that I do is around value creation. It's around stakeholders, which I call building consensus. It's about getting to know people and how to serve them. And it's about helping organizations succeed and move forward. It seems like, too, I think, like what you just said and described, what salespeople need to do, it's what human beings need to do. It, what you teach in sales, you can teach your kids to be positive, good teenagers as well. It's, it keep, doesn't, keep reminding me I can do that. <laughs> just one day at a time. One, one day, day, at, a one time day right. at a time. That's right. But it, and that's how, you know, I've never thought that sales necessarily is entirely difficult when I just open myself up to those processes and I just each each meeting each conversation I treat those people like I treat my mother like I treat my wife like I treat my best friend and I think there's kind of a wave of that coming with the way industry is changing and I think if, if you're not doing that it's going to be you're either not going to make it or it's going to be entirely difficult or maybe you do but you're stressed out all the time and a lot of people don't like working with you. Well, listen, so here's what's happened. Over, well, since the beginning of time, at least recorded history, globalization has been occurring. But now the speed of globalization has ratcheted up and it, the world is shrinking faster and faster. We've been trading since the Silk Road into China and India thousands of years ago where people walked over and brought things back to sell in another neighborhood. Okay, fine, but now. We've got competitors in India and China, and we were happy outsourcing our white-collar work to them, but now we're, or blue-collar work, now we're outsourcing white-collar work, and we find out that people in third-world countries are every bit as entrepreneurial, every bit as aggressive, every bit as smart, and every bit as determined as we are. So now there's this dearth, there's this giant overpopulation in, in every market. There's too much 
availability of whatever it is you sell. So that's meant more commoditization. At the same time, whole industries are getting wiped out by the internet in disintermediation. You do not want to be a publisher right now and go up against Amazon's Kindle platform, which you published your ebook on. I just published an ebook. You're going you to be self-publishing in a few months for your book. Publishers don't need to exist, at least in the form that they're in now. They're going yes. to change, I'm sure. You don't want to be a newspaper right now, unless you've got some serious game and you've got the ability to get behind a paywall and create value that you can capture some because of disintermediation. And then to cap it off, as if these two giant forces aren't enough, we've got uh, two recessions that bookended the last decade. So we started with the dot-com bubble, which was wonderful because it gave us all a taste of how bad things could be. As a warm-up, for a global collapse where 80% of the wealth in the world disappeared and evaporated in a few short months that we've been digging out of ever since. So now what's happened is everybody looks at you like you're a commodity, like you're a transaction, like they have to get the lowest price from you. And it's this mentality that even though the economy is doing great, Corporate balance sheets are richer than they've ever been. There's money sitting on the sidelines. You're treated like you have to be transactional. So here's the rift, and it's being torn apart. There's two sides to this, and you're going to be on one side of the gap here or the other. There's one side that's embracing this and saying, listen, I'm going to try to find a way to be as transactional as I can and treat you like you're not important, that we just need to do business as quickly, efficiently as possible. And it's a commodity sale, so I don't care what you do. I'm going to get the lowest price. You're going to treat me that way. On the other side, those of us way across the gap, this gap's about as wide probably as the Grand Canyon, right? The other side of us are saying, listen, that's not good enough. I've got to create more value for you because you're not going to do as well as you can behaving that way and being transactional. And I'm going to care deeply about you and your outcomes. And by caring deeply about you and creating more value, I'm going to help you do better. And I'm going to capture more value too. And we're going to stake out this territory over here where real sales organizations that create real complex B2B outcomes are going to live. And this is even going to be B2C. I mean, I've got a client in uh, the travel business, and they're a great example of level four value creation. They care more than anyone else. I've gotten knocked off of flights, and I've been put right back on that flight and given a good seat instantly just by calling because it's who they are and it's what they do. They care so deeply. Um, people are willing to pay for that level of experience and that level of care. But you have to decide which side of the gap you're on. And most of us are making the wrong choice yeah. trying to behave transactionally when we're human beings. And we still care about what you and I are doing right now, which is you send me an email and we're getting together having a cup of coffee talking about big issues with people that care about it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, I think Seth Godin said in a blog a couple of weeks ago, you can it's a race to the bottom. And everybody's racing down there. But the problem is you may get to the bottom and you may think you won and you got that lowest price and then somebody else is going to come a little bit lower. And the race to the top is harder, but it's worthwhile and it, it works. Yeah, there's recent uh, research out of Deloitte who wrote a book called Three Rules, How Exceptional Companies Win. They studied 25,046 companies over a little over 40 years, and what they found out is there's only three rules to having a sustained, excellent business. And anybody who did the rules were fine until they stopped doing the rules, and then they dropped out of the list. But the rule number one is you've got to be better, not cheaper. You've got to find a way to differentiate yourself in a way that makes a difference for people that makes you worth paying more for. 
And that's rule number one. And a lot of people get this wrong. They think I'm supposed to be competing on price. You're supposed to be creating, you're competing rather, on value. You're supposed to be differentiating yourself. Rule number two was focused more on revenue growth than cost containment. So now we're in a world where after all those three big forces I described have commoditized us, everybody's worried about cost containment. And it's not the recipe to succeed long term. Rule number three is there aren't any other rules. Just work on number one and number two, and that's enough to put you into the block of companies that grow. And I think it is for us as individuals, too. If you treat people like they're a transaction, and if your model is that people don't matter, and these things don't matter, and these outcomes don't matter, you get the result that says you don't have a sustainable business model. Yes. But if you care deeply, that's a sustainable business model. It says I'm going to differentiate myself on value. And that's where all the action is right now. Absolutely. So what's, uh, you know, when you talk about that with the action, what is, uh, what's going on in your world right now? What are, what are the next steps, evolution, where are you going? What's that's, happening? That's a great and uh, long and complicated question. So <laughs> I've written so much, but I've taken um, a framework that I structured about the elements that it takes for a salesperson to succeed. And there's nine attributes and eight skills that salespeople need. And I'm calling the book 17 Elements, although my editor refuses to go with that title. But you'll see the book sometime at the beginning of next year. And it's really a framework for how do salespeople get better. It's a personal professional development guide for salespeople and entrepreneurs. And that's what that first book is. I've drafted the second book at the same time because I've done so much writing. I've got the book for level four value creation, which is how to identify dream clients how to create level four value, how to build consensus, and then how to capture some of that value for yourself. Both of those books will come out next year. And I've just licensed a partner in South Africa to train uh, both of those frameworks. So they're training level four value creation and building consensus. And they're also gonna be training the 17 elements. So I've started working on licensing arrangements so I can help more people get this skill set faster. I'm also going to launch a, um, a site called L4VC.com, which is going to be a membership site for salespeople and sales organizations who want to give their salespeople access to these kinds of ideas with the same tools that I would use in a consulting engagement, but at a price that individuals can get the help that they need. So if, if you're a small organization and you say, we can't afford that because it's too much for what we need, I want to give people some way that they can still get the skills. So I'll be launching that uh, as soon as I get the book over the line. Awesome. Level four value creation is how I try to live with my clients each and every day. And it's hard, but it works. So I'll, it's, we'll definitely put a bug in Todd's ear to get that for the radio station. It, it's hard, but it's not quite as hard as trying to behave transactionally. It, it's, it's a lot easier than racing to the bottom. Yes, yeah, so no question. So what advice do you have out there for people who, you know, Obviously, you love what you do, and you're trying to help people who are out, the people who are looking for their hot dog stand, looking to find a little passion in their life, in their career, uh, trying to ignite ignite a fire within themselves. What advice do you have for anybody out there? I, I think the first piece of advice. Let's go to mindset first, and let's let's talk about the world that we live in. So, for three and a half million years, we've been on this planet. At least we've got pelvic bones that are that old, so we can say something that looked like us was at here. some level was here. So we've been here for a long time. And throughout history, so let's go from three and a half million years ago to let's let's call it 1939. Let's just pick 1939, beginning really of World War II. And 
at that time, you took care of yourself. Your government didn't take care of you. Your company didn't take care of you. You were 100% responsible. Even though the industrial age had started and people had started moving into factories and at, at a big level, mostly there wasn't this kind of bargain that we had from, let's call it 1940, so I'm going to say, let's call it the middle of the 80s when there, when there was really a rupture. Through that period of time, your company was going to take care of you. They were going to provide your health care for life. They were going to provide your retirement benefits for life. And they, you pensions galore. Pensions. You were 100% certain you were taken care of. So that contract really started to break in the 70s when the Japanese started to enter this market with products. And then it got ruptured more in the 80s when we had what was called right-sizing, where we started to say, wait, there's way too much waste in companies. we got to get rid of the bodies that are taking up space and money. And all bets are off after the last decade. So if you're not aware that all bets are off, all bets are off. Your company's not keeping you when times get tough. They've got to look after the company first. And if you're waste and you're not creating enough value, they're going to help you find your way to the door. They're not going to give you the rich pension and retirement. They're not going to take care of your health care. And regardless of what your politics are, I don't care what your politics are, the government is not going to be able to take care of you with health care and social security, at least at the level that you're going to want it. Yes. There's going to be a social safety net, but it's not going to be rich benefits that you can say, I feel confident I'm taken care of. If there was ever a time to set your sails and say, I've got to have something going on where I know I can take care of myself, where I know I can make the money to hustle and take care of my family, where I know I'm going to be secure, this is that time. Absolutely. And really, if this bothers you and this rupture in the economy has scared you and frightened you and you want security, let me tell you, all we've done is returned to the state in which we found ourselves in nature. The rest of the three and a half million years minus that little 50-year gap from call it 1940 to 1990. That's how it was. This is how it was and this is how it's going to be again. So you've got to start looking out for you and your family. And if you're going to do it with your hot dog stand, whatever that hot dog stand is, whatever that's a metaphor for, now's the time to start setting your plans in motion. Absolutely. That's, that's great. Um, couldn't agree more. I just assume that I'm not going to have Social Security. And if... For some great reason, I do. Great, you'll but, be able to, you'll be able to take the two thousand dollars they send you each month and order a pizza. Yes, absolutely, it'll be perfect. Uh, finally, you know, let's conclude. Where can people find you? How can they check out all this value you're creating and the books that you're going to have out? Um, tell everybody how to link up with you and catch up with you. This is uh, this is the easiest way to find me is to go to thesalesblog.com, and when you get there, across the top. There'll be a Stay Connected uh, banner, and you can connect with me and follow me on Twitter, on Facebook, on Vimeo, on LinkedIn, on Google+, wherever you want to connect. There's a contact page, so if you go to the contact page, you can email me directly with questions, however I can help you. There's about a million places where you can sign up for the newsletter because that's the most important thing I want you to do. Sign up for the newsletter. It comes out every Sunday. It's long form, so I'll warn you now. Every week I get an email saying, hey, can you make these emails shorter? And the answer is no, I can't and I won't. It's long form. I'm trying to give you the whole idea on Sunday to set you up for the week. And uh, that would be the, the best place to start. person's not dishonest and they won't skim it, I guess. They, they just want to make, make it shorter for you. I just want to send out, you know, I just want to send them one line saying, yeah. you know, 
uh, last week was animal spirits. And just to say, be careful for animal spirits. Did that, did that cover it for you or would you like to know more? Is that brevity enough for you? There, there's your brief idea. So thesalesblog.com and from there you can find him. He's all over the place. Um, before we go, let's do a little uh, lightning round question time with Marketing Fun with Mike. If you had to go do sales for a company again, right now, you were working for a company, what company would it be? Google. Google. Yeah, Google. Uh, Google is on the leading edge of trying to end death. And uh, they hired Ray Kurzweil, who wrote The Singularity is Near. And if I was going to dedicate myself to any mission, that would be where I would go to do it. If your rock band had a reunion show and you got to play one cover song, what would it be? One cover song. Uh, Grand Funk Railroad. Um, what is it? Pull Out a Wonderful? Is that what yes. it is? Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. a good one. I like it. That's what I'd, I'd have to pick that. Look for Bad Reputation of the Newport maybe in like 2031. <laughs> 2031. That's a long time. Uh, what country do you want to have a public speaking gig in to make a long weekend out of it? Italy. Italy. Has to be Italy. I've been to uh, Ireland, England, uh, the Netherlands, South Africa, Australia, all over the States, uh, a little bit in Asia, but Italy would be number one just, on my list. just wants some spaghetti and a Vespa. It's not yes. too much to ask for. I just think with the last name, with all these vows, I would be warmly embraced. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Finally, uh, when you have a hot dog, ketchup or mustard? Oh, mustard. mustard. How's that even a question? That's, it's funny. It's not anymore. <laughs> As I've been going through it, nobody Anybody likes ketchup. Anybody who says ketchup is under the age of 15. <laughs> Anthony, uh, thanks again for coming on the show today. As I said, Anthony can be found at thesalesblog.com, and you can dig in from there. Once again, my name is Mike Rudd, and I'm an author, a speaker, a sports marketing specialist, and a hot dog extraordinaire. If you have someone you want to see on the show or think you're worthy, I'd love to hear from you. Visit marketingfunwithmike.com, and from there, you can reach out to me however you would like. Until the next edition of the Hot Dog Sand Chronicles, this is the Hot Dog Extraordinaire, Mike Rudd, and Anthony Anarino signing off. Carpe diem. You are just listening to the Hot Dog Stand Chronicles. Until next time, the Hot Dog Extraordinaire has signed off. Thanks for tuning in.